0: This is the Child Discipleship Podcast, powered by Awana. I'm Ross Cochran, and I get to host these conversations. And I am so glad that you're listening. Today's going to be a fun episode. We are in the middle of a series of conversations focused on discipleship of those who have been impacted by mental or physical disabilities. If you've been listening to this podcast for any length of time, you know how close this conversation is to my personal story, and I'm always so encouraged to meet folks who are passionate about the discipleship of every child in their community, and the folks at The Hope Collective in Lake Zurich, Illinois, are those kind of people. This church has made the discipleship of the special needs community a fundamental element of each and every gathering. I could go on and on, but I want you to hear from them directly. In this episode, you're going to hear from some of the staff at HopeCo In a series of conversations back to back that I had for a video that we featured at the Child Discipleship Forum. So it's going to sound a little bit different than a typical episode, but you're going to meet Dave Mudd, who's the lead pastor. You're going to meet Megan March. She's now the information coordinator, but she's served the special needs community for most of her time with the HopeCo. Sam Green is now the access coordinator, which is the name of the special needs ministry at this church. And Donna Reamer is the outreach pastor. These are just four of the leaders there, but I could have interviewed so many of the folks at this church. If you want to learn more about HopeCo, you can check out the show notes wherever you're listening. But let's get started. This is the Child Discipleship Podcast. I would love for you just to share your name, your title here, and please spell your name so that we don't have to go look it up on the website later.
1: (laughs) That's funny. Dave Mudd. M-U-D-D. And I'm the lead pastor here at the Hope Collective.
0: One of the things that is really apparent in just learning more about your church is how discipleship is a sort of key identity or a key part of that culture. You've clearly centered discipleship in the life of this uh, community. Mm-hmm. How did you do that? What did that look like? Was that a conscious choice, like sort of an aha moment? Or were you able to start making little choices along the way?
1: Or um, stumble. Or st- into it as part of what so <laughs> how do you dis- how do you stumble, <laughs> into, how do we we stumble, stumble into discipleship, into discipleship. <laughs> um so i think it i think it starts with seeing um a church culture that isn't making an impact in the world and asking some really hard questions about why um we you're always running short on volunteers and yet if you have disciples you're not right Um, there seems to be a consumeristic mentality. And so if it doesn't benefit me, then why do I do it? Um, and so then taking a look at the church and saying, what is the model that we currently have, which is weekend over everything where the Sunday morning I come in and consume religious goods and services is the thing we offer that isn't working because we actually reflect a world we're trying to impact and you cannot impact a world that you reflect. And so what, is it, what does it look like then to say um, death to religion and death to the American dream? Because for most people in the church, and we said 80%, Jesus was a value-add proposition to their pursuit of the American dream. Basically, what does it mean to say death to the American dream? If Jesus is a value-add proposition to our pursuit of the American dream, which he actually will not be. So he won't be. He'll either be Lord or he'll be nothing. Um, then what does it look like? For God to get a hold of our heart and radically redirect our hearts, meaning that our time, our talent, our treasure goes to the kingdom. That's a people who have decided that church is not one day over every day. It's every day over one day. That's a people who have said it's greater than just being forgiven by God. It's to be free from the things of this world, whether the flesh, the world or the devil so that I know what freedom looks like. So that I know what the gospel looks like. Because we can say that the gospel is Jesus came, he lived a life, he died on the cross and he rose from the dead. That's the gospel message. But how has that gospel message come to bear on my life in such a way that I can actually share a story with somebody of how I'm free? And so to look around the church and see that we're not free, we may be forgiven, and we're not enjoying Jesus, why would we expect to bring hope to a world that we haven't experienced? So for us, um, and to become the Hope Collective was to say, those who have hope have to start acting like it. That's the discipleship piece, which for us started with this realization that when I put together my loves and my wants and my desires, and I hold those in my hand, that the things I love and I want and I desire don't necessarily include God, and can I lament that? Outside of guilt and shame and condemnation, and can I, can I own it in a way to say, God, I want to want you? And I think that's the start of true discipleship, is to say, here's my life, and I want everything but you so my loves and my wants and my desires are disordered, and God, I want them to be reordered so that they're like Christ. So discipleship is, what does it look like when my life becomes like Christ? I will do what Christ did, say what Christ said, and act like Christ act. And that has to do with, how is my past impacting my present in such a way that keeps me from being like Christ. So as a church, we've just dove into that. Well, what happens when you do that is people's purpose comes out of their pain more often than not. And so whether it's this desire um, to, it always looks like fighting injustice. So discipleship is all about biblical community. Do I have a space where I can be fully known and still loved? Do I have a space where I can trust and be transparent, not just transparent, but vulnerable? Can I be accountable, not to the bad things I do, though that's part of accountability, but to the good things left undone? So what's God asking me to do that I'm not doing? And can it be spirit led to the point where I'm actually healing from the inside out so transformation is happening? So discipleship is transformation. We've made discipleship behavior modification. So we've thrown all kinds of... When it's transformative, God will give you the thing he's calling you to do, and it will often look like injustice. So what I mean when I say injustice... Is at the very core of injustice is a, a spiritual issue because it's a sin issue. But the way it plays itself out is by nature, it's relational. So we're broken in relationship. Therefore, we have to heal in relationship. So we live in a culture of social justice, right? Which is about fighting more for causes where injustice is about what's happening to people. So it's about fighting for hearts, And what we would say about injustice, because it's a spiritual problem, which is a sin issue, and a lot of times sin is the exhaustive idolatry, right? Is when we get our loves and wants and our desires ordered right, and so what God is radically redirecting our heart and we're going after, we will fight for those that injustice has now uh, raised itself against. And we would say that whether you're in... Zambia or Haiti or Brazil or the Lake Zurich area, there are five global giants of injustice there at work. There's five in every area and it's spiritual emptiness, poverty, illiteracy, disease, and oppression. And so when you think about what God is calling us to, that those things, those giants that God has given us the right to to put down those giants are at work in people's lives. How do we come in then and fight for those who can't fight for themselves? So when I get free, free people, free people. Disciples go. So if you have a church full of disciples, you can't stop evangelism. You can't stop fighting injustice because that's what discipleship always leads to. If you look at the early church, what is the early church and the teachings of Jesus responsible for? It's responsible for the way we feel about women today for good, the way we feel about kids today for good. Higher and lower education is because of the church, hospitals, orphanages. The way in which the world thinks about a lot of the things where justice is at work is because of the early church, because of what Jesus did, because of the teachings of Christ that fell on hearts and transformed them from the inside out. So what does it look like to focus on a church and become an everyday people over a one-day people where the Sunday isn't consuming religious goods and services, but Sunday is where I come to glorify God for all the good that he's done. We group, though, to grow, and that's where we get into that DNA of biblical community, and that's where God begins to shake things up, and we begin to be transformed, and then we go fight giants. That's the rhythm. That's that up-in-and-out rhythm that I think discipleship looks like in the church, and when that happens, whether it's kids, students, adults, the hurting, the broken, God covers it all.
2: My name is Sam Green and I am the Access Coordinator here at the Hope Collective.
0: What is Access?
2: Um, so Access is our um, ministry here on Sunday mornings and also our services during the week that provides support for um, people and families impacted by disability.
0: How did you first start getting connected or why were you first drawn to serving those who have been impacted by special needs?
2: Um, so I'm actually a special education teacher by trade. I taught special education for seven years. And so when the group of people got together to create access here at the Hope Collective, um, I was really excited just because I had the, the knowledge. And so I was a part of the team that, um, built the room and kind of created what Sunday mornings could look like for these kids with disabilities. Um, but, but some, God kind of did something really cool, um, in the past. Five years or so of teaching, um, I found that I really loved building relationships with the parents of my students. I loved interacting with my students on a daily basis, um, but I would sit in these parent-teacher conferences with my my families and just find that I was so drawn to their stories. Um, I was so eager to hear more about how they lived life day to day. Um, but I also noticed some themes. I noticed that, um, oftentimes they were super isolated and just didn't have their people. They didn't have community. And, um, God really started to do a work in me to break my heart for these families that are just generally unseen in the community. And in fact, they often felt like the community was against them because they didn't have access. And so, um, As God started to open my eyes to that situation in the community, I started to realize, like, we have a role as the church in this. And what can we do as the church to be an accessible community for these families impacted by disability?
0: What does discipleship look like in access?
2: I think that discipleship for access Is what discipleship looks like for all of us. It's being in community and in relationship with believers who are walking alongside you as you learn to be more like Jesus. And, um, so I think another reason why people choose not to embark on this journey of disability ministry is because it seems so complicated. But truthfully, discipling kids with disabilities is the same as discipling kids. It's, knowing, knowing the children, um, helping them feel like they belong and have a place in the kingdom and are becoming more like Jesus. And so it's no different for a child with disabilities as it is for a typically developing child.
0: What are some of the practical ways you help a child who's in a wheelchair or a child who maybe is nonverbal and their family feel like they belong as part of your ministry? Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Um, so, I mean, the primary ways to help people with disabilities feel like they belong is having a space. I mean, having space that is, for lack of a better word, accessible, a space that they can get in and out of, a space where they can be comfortable. So if you have a physical disability, it's having ramps, it's having wheelchair access, it's having a place, and when you're designing a space, having them in mind. Um, if a child has sensory needs or an adult has sensory needs having a space where they can be i think the initial way to have your space be accessible is to consider the physicality of your building and say do i have a space where people with sensory needs can go do i have a space for people with physical disabilities to be do i have a way for people with physical disabilities to get into the building to get to all of our spaces Um, because there's nothing that stops belonging than like more than oh, I can't get there. So of course I don't belong. Right. I think another way that we convey belonging in this community is just by being friendly, being open, being willing to step into conversation that might initially feel uncomfortable um, to see somebody that, that may be different than yourself and to not let the fear of discomfort or saying the wrong thing get in the way of interacting with these people with each other. Um, I think that that is is another primary way where um, belonging kind of becomes the the priority.
0: Can you offer a sense of reality to someone who hasn't interacted on why these kids sometimes show you the best Mm -hmm. pictures of Jesus Mm -hmm. possible?
2: Um, when I think about how, um, access first started, I mean, it really just started as wanting to create a space. Um, but the more that we experienced this space with children in it and got to know the disabled community and their families, the more, um, we started to realize that it's more than just having Sunday school on a Sunday morning. Um, and so when I think about what discipleship looks like for kids with disabilities. I think about um, the picture of the kingdom of God and who God is and all of his facets. And I think about how when we take the time to engage with a community that's different from ourselves, that sometimes can make us feel uncomfortable, um, we actually see a greater picture of the kingdom of God and actually a deeper facet of who God is and his creativity and who he created people to be. And so I think about, when, um, we have, we have a a little girl with cerebral palsy and access. And so, um, she is nonverbal and she's, um, wheelchair bound. Um, but she is so passionate about music. And so when you turn on worship music, her face just lights up and she loves to dance. And I just think about how, if I didn't engage with her, I wouldn't see that piece of God. I would miss out on this beautiful piece of the kingdom. And I think about another little boy who um, just loves to run. And I think, man, I wish I had that energy. And God gifted him with that energy and that desire to run. And so I think about, when I think about discipleship, I think about how we've created a space where kids can belong. But it's not just for the sake of belonging. It's actually... Because as they become more like Jesus, they have a role in the kingdom of God. They have something that God has designed for them to do here. And it may not look like what I'm going to do or what um, my next door neighbor will do in society, but it is something unique.
0: Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. Before we get back to the show. Have you heard about childdiscipleship.com? Our team has intentionally crafted this growing collection of insights and resources to help you pass on a legacy of faith. We're committed to keeping things simple, rooted in scripture, and ultimately practical to serve you and your ministry. How do we raise kids to be resilient disciples and lead the church into the future? How do we help them know, love, and serve Jesus for the rest of their lives? These are the sort of questions we will make our best efforts to wrestle with and answer at childdiscipleship.com, but we want to do that with you. This is about more than crafts and snacks, people. Check out childdiscipleship.com powered by Awana today.
4: My name is Megan March, um, and I am the information coordinator here at the Hope Collective.
0: As part of the founding team, what led you as a group to make this decision to prioritize discipleship for this particular group of people?
4: Yeah, um, we knew there was a hole. We knew there was a hole in serving um, a couple kids in particular that were already coming to our church, um, that we knew we weren't able to connect with and and teach as well as the rest of the kids. And there just wasn't any support for them in kids ministry on Sundays, um, or during the week for that matter for the midweek stuff. But, you know, over time, um, there were a couple staff members, Donna being one of them, um, that found the people, um, who she felt had the heart to bring this kind of a ministry to those children. And our team was formed and we started the conversation of what does it look like to disciple these kids and be supportive for them and bring what they need to be successful in this, in this environment.
0: How would you say that you guys have managed to sort of integrate or center serving this community? when so often in society, those as particularly kids and families who have special needs can be sort of put to the side.
4: Yeah. It's, it's definitely a hoop hmm. that that we had to jump through and we had the heart to do it. We had the drive and the, the goal, um, to bridge that gap and bring them here because, um, they belong here. <laughs> they belong here. And it's, it, it can be such a cliche line to throw out there, but, um, the heart of Jesus wants them here. (laughs) Um, and we want them here. So we, we work together as a team to bring respite events and reach out to the community and say, Hey, we have this ministry on Sunday morning. But a lot of times, um, the families that have kids with special needs don't come to church on Sunday because they assume that there's no, there's nothing for their kid to be supported on a Sunday morning during Sunday school or kids' ministry, whatever the church calls it, um, but once you have that, then they know they're safe to come here so we We used our respite events as more of a community outreach to bring those families in and build that relationship with them, so they they would come, spend a few hours with us show them that their kids are safe and loved in this environment. And then they started coming on Sundays and it's just been really cool to see how just the love that we show those kids and those families has brought them closer to Jesus and being here on Sundays as well. A respite event is a time, ours happen to be three hours, um, where families sign up their kids and drop them off, both the kids with special needs and their siblings. Um, that's the way we do it. And they just come and they hang out and they play for three hours um, and the parents get to do whatever they need to do. Parents and ca- caregivers alike, they can go grocery shopping, they can go take a nap in the car. Um <laughs> whatever whatever they need to do, but just get a break, a well-deserved break for all of the hard work that they do during the week.
0: Yeah. I would imagine that in particular is something that came together relatively early in this process. Mm-hmm. Where because similar to Peg's place, that's a place that's a service that allows for that sense of belonging that we've talked so much about. Is that sort of the, has that been the consistent fruit you've seen in discipleship where that respite event helps people feel like they belong and become increasingly connected to the relationship with Jesus?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, we partner with um, an outside organization that is, um, rooted in, um, in faith, but it's not, um, proclaim during the ministry, um, just because you don't, <laughs> it's the love, it's the love that brings Jesus. Um, and so we partnered with them very early on. Um, and they've been kind of the way that we've done our respite events in the past since the inception when we launched the ministry. So did the respite events because we knew that, um, to reach more families, to tell them that we had this opportunity on Sunday mornings. We wanted them to build a relationship with us and, and know that we are a safe space and a, and a loving space for their kids in that respite space before they would come on a Sunday. You get to know the families a lot more when when you're hanging out in a respite event <laughs> um, than necessarily on a Sunday morning, just because it's a little bit more structured um, and busy. <laughs> <laughs> when you come into the church on a Sunday morning, then when it's just those families coming in for a respite event,
0: this is an obvious question, mm-hmm. but what's the benefit of that? Why does it matter to get to know the families of particularly kids who have some level of special needs? Because I think it's important to articulate mm-hmm. this isn't just about the kid.
4: Yeah. It's not just about the kid. The families, the families are everything for these kids with special needs. Um, they, they do all the hard work <laughs> every day of the week, um, and the parents, the parents just fall in line with, you know, I got to do this, 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 when we're just like, breathe. <laughs> we're here for you, we love you, and we want to give you a break. Um, when the parents first come, to, when the parents come to their first respite event, um, we always take time to introduce the program and get to know the parents a little bit more just to learn their stories. Um, while the kids go off and play obviously and, but they get a chance to fill us in on what, what life looked like before, whatever they want to share really, but what life looked like before their kid came into the world and now what life looks like now and what they go through and how everything just, Tell us about their life a little bit more. And we get a lot of information about each of the children um, through the process of of those respite events, which then helps us even more on Sunday mornings to know what those kids need to be successful in just that hour and 15 minutes that they're here.
0: How would you define the differences, but also the similarities between those who serve with access and those who serve in other ministries.
4: Yeah. It's, it's very similar in that you get involved and you get to love on somebody that you're serving with or and serving. Um, like that's, that's the basis of what it is. Obviously, when you come in contact with kids with special needs, there's a level of medical knowledge that you may need to know or not need to know or that they just have this condition that you need to be aware of. Um, but there's a team that's ready to back you up and support you in whatever. Your job is just to come love on these kids and walk with them through the morning, through your time with them, and just be a friend. All I need is somebody to love on them and sit next to them and color there's a couple kids that i can think of that they can't they can't do much they're just in a wheelchair but when you're there and you're looking at them and you're playing with them the smile on their face just glows and they dance And it's just, it's powerful. It's powerful. You don't think what you're doing is a lot because you, you you can't do a lot. You don't know if they understand. You don't know. You don't know what's happening. You don't know how they're taking in the information, but that smile means the world. It means the world to that child.
0: How did this adaptive playground come to be? And what were some of those early conversations like?
4: Yeah. Um... I think it was always, it was always something that was in our conversation of, it'd be really cool to have this. It'd be really cool to have something like this. And then one day Donna came to me and said, Hey, I got this <laughs> from my friend Peg. <laughs> and you know, the juices just started flowing. The ideas started forming and we, we jumped on the, okay, let's get some preliminary ideas of what this playground could be. Um and we we met with local teachers that also um, come to our church, and they brought related services team members to chat because we wanted to know what we could incorporate to reach the different skills that the, that our kids would need to work on outside of school. We didn't want it to just be a fun place where they can play, but also a place for them to grow and continue using the skills that they're learning in therapies and things like that. Um, and it's, and, and provide the sensory spaces on there as well. So while they're having fun, you know, if they get overwhelmed, we have, we have a, a space for them out there where they can be in a more enclosed space. That's going to be calming for them.
0: Yeah. And in my understanding was there were some kids like with a lemonade stand, like this started on a very like one to one (laughs) level. Can you tell that story?
4: Yeah. Um, about a year ago, year and a half ago during COVID, um, we welcomed, uh, the center for independence, um, which is a local, um, not-for-profit organization that works with kids with cerebral palsy um, and they are now using our facility for their treatments during the week during the summer they have a four-week camp um, and they were actually here before the playground was built um, and they they love our facility and we love having them here. And it's, um, it's been really cool to build that relationship with them. And so as part of um, the funding and fundraising for the playground, the children of CFI um, had a lemonade stand out front of our church and raised a, a good chunk of money <laughs> to go towards the playground. And it was just really cool to see um these kids fight for something that would benefit them and just it's a place for them to belong um dallas she's such a sweetheart she's i'm she's like (laughs) one of the faces of of the videos for the lemonade stand and she's she's just a little spitfire and she's got such a big heart um But she knows she knows that when there's a wheelchair swing on a playground, she can participate in the play. And that was that was one of the things that stuck through all of the designs, all of the thought processes, is that there needs to be a wheelchair swing. There needs to be a wheelchair swing. Um, And and we made it
3: happen. My name is Donna Remer. Gosh, I have a bunch of different jobs,
0: but it would be um, the outreach director. And what does outreach director mean?
3: Um, I oversee the Hope Center here at um, the Hope Collective, and I also oversee the missions and the prayer and care and anything outreaching, you know, in our community and also in the world.
0: If I'm new to the area, if I'm new to this community, what do you hope people are saying about the Hope Collective? What do you hope that if uh, I asked someone about your church. Mm -hmm. What do you wish that they say?
3: Yeah. What do, what do I wish people would say about us is that we care. Um, and that we have no agenda, um, that we authentically want to love them in the name of Jesus, that, um, everyone can be involved here, that everyone is welcome. Um, and as far as the access in the disability community, that it isn't just children, but it's adults and teens who have um, a disability that um, has brought them on a long journey. And sometimes they haven't always been welcomed in churches. Welcome to the extent, but not the red carpet has not been rolled out for them. Um, even in my own life, my husband was a quadriplegic for 38 years in a wheelchair. And w- a lot of churches would welcome us, but he was always in the back or couldn't see the screen. Um, there was when we first got married, a church in displays that it sticks in my mind. And I'll always remember it because they did make us welcome. There were stairs all the way up and they said, don't let this stop you. And there'd be four men at the bottom carrying his wheelchair all the way up the stairs to make sure that he would get a service. I think that's where the sensitivity of looking out for someone who might have a special need came from because I lived in that environment most of my married life. So um, it just made me more in tuned to the sensitivity. Um, and I think that I tried to bring that here. I think just the presence and knowing my husband and the person he was also brought that a lot of the fear was relieved when they would meet us or meet him um, because of the way he loved Jesus. He. Actually, ran some of the Sparks programs here at the church um, when some of our staff were little, and now they're on staff here. Um, so it's always been a part of the Hope Collective, I think, since I've been here. And so I want people to know that that there's nothing that should put up a block or a, a wall to hearing. And experiencing the love of Jesus here? Nothing. <laughs> you know, I think sometimes through some of the Bible stories, you know, when I study the Bible, and so many people who had an illness or a disability in the Bible, people would either step over them or avoid them. And Jesus never did that. Jesus caught them right where they were. Um, he, I could just see him bending down. Um, at the man at the pool that was paralyzed and just seeing him and loving him right where he is. He met each of those people. Um, I think of the man coming through the roof where his, his friends brought him. Um, he healed him there. Like he saw him. So it shouldn't be so inaccessible at a church that they can't see Jesus and that Jesus can't meet them right where they're at.
4: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. That
0: was beautiful. I was, I was, you took me to church right there. I was ready to start and just listening to all those stories because I think that level of being seen, being seen is so, it's so obvious here in mm-hmm. just preparing to have these conversations. Mm-hmm. It was so clear that even if access, you know, started when it did or mm-hmm. Peg's place started when it did, that this was a part of your DNA oh, yeah. as a, as a church. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to the value of that in connection to discipleship for the broader community. I would imagine that people see who are connected here, see that the level of care, the level of love Mm -hmm. that's extended to a community that is sometimes overlooked. And that helps fuel their own level of discipleship because you guys so obviously see everyone.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, so how do people feel seen? Um, you know, it really is the power of the Holy spirit, because you can have a, an agenda behind being seen to grow our church, um, to be that different church. But here it's um, authentic. I think that God has been working in this um, community of believers for such a time as this. I think... Um, the people that come truly feel cared for. There's relationships being built and discipleship. There's some dinners that are bringing them together with other like-minded um, and people who are on that same journey. Years ago, we had started um, a group on a Sunday morning. It was called um, Mama, Moms of Extraordinary Children. And what we would do is we would take one of the service times and we would meet as moms, um, and encourage each other through the scripture. It wasn't um, a support group like a school would have where we would be bashing what we're not getting and what's not working. And But that group would spend time praying for our children and praying that they would know Jesus and that God would strengthen each of us in our journey because there was a purpose in our journey. I have a son who has autism and um, severe learning disabilities, 33 right now. There was never a place in church he fit. And I thought that was really unfair. But with this mom's group, when we would look out for each other, he had a place to fit, I felt supported. So it was really a passion to keep that group moving Um, And these weren't just physical disabilities. These were some emotional disabilities and struggles, um, learning, um, children who were on the spectrum. Um, When you say it's in the DNA, I think it has been in the DNA. I think it's the Holy Spirit. He's taking journeys that each of us have had in our own life, and he's saying Satan is, is wanting to use it um, against the kingdom work. And God is saying, no, I'm going to use this for his kingdom. There's going to be something in this journey, this hardship, that brings um, the evidence that God is still working that God um, loves everyone, sees everyone, sees every mom that is struggling, sees every child that feels like they don't fit in to say, hey, I think I belong here. I think God has sent me here. So uh, once you break through that barrier, once they know they are loved and they can, count, they can be safe, a very safe place, then the gospel just rings. Then their eyes are open to Jesus and his love. Then they trust you. Then it's a safe place. Then they tell their friends who are on the same journey, come, like they, they love my son here. They're caring for my son here. They're caring for me. Something's different there. Um. So I think that's what happens. And I can't deny that it's not the power of God and his Holy Spirit because that's how Jesus lived. He saw everyone. He saw the little children. He saw those who were blind. He saw those with leprosy. He didn't just see them. He stopped and then he encountered them, which changed their life, which brought them to faith. So I think a lot of people see the disabled, see what's going on in the world, see the injustice, but they don't stop and live in the injustice. I think once you stop and live in the injustice and you get to see the person behind um, the journey they're on and the difficulties that they face every single day, you just naturally love them and see them with the eyes of Jesus.
0: What is Peg's Place? Mm -hmm. What is this playground? And as someone who's part of the sort of initial team for that effort, Mm -hmm. how did this come to be?
3: Okay. So how did Peg's Place start? Um, We'll have to go back to the basics. Peg's Place started. Um, why it's name's Peg's Place is I had a really good dear friend. Her name was Peggy Brickliffe. She was from England. She was a nurse um, in the city of Chicago. And she worked with disabled children until she was 78 years old. And the children she worked with were children who had very severe disabilities. Peg worked seven days a week. It was rare that I could get her to my house to live up on her. Um, She died at 88 years old. Um, She knew the vision that we had here at the HOPE Collective was um, to open our doors to the disabled community. So when she passed, she left a nice sum of money, a chunk, um, because she knew that we would use it um, to bring the kingdom to children with disabilities. So that's kind of how Peg's Place got started. So then what we did was we brought some staff members and church members who were very sensitive um, to what we could build here for that community. So we met for quite some time, um, went through a lot of plans, and came up with Peg's Place. So, Peg's Place, there's not anywhere on Peg's Place playground that a child with a disability cannot get to. So, uh, many um, playgrounds that we visited in the process would be ADA approved, but that means that the swing would be lower that would mean that there's an extra step to get up to the slide. So a parent would take a child with a disability to this playground and they physically would have to carry the child on and assist. That's that's not um, the place here. Every ride, the swings, the slides, everything is accessible. We also have communication boards for those children who can't uh, communicate well. They can point to the communication board. There's um, some sensory things in um, the base and the ground of the playground for children who are seeking um, sensitivity. And um, that's what we wanted it to be. So um, we did have to reach out to the community a little bit for some extra funding because it's... it's, It's pretty expensive (laughs) to build a playground like that and to have adaptive equipment that every child feels welcome and safe. And the community, it it was funny because when we reached out to the community, a few community leaders who had the means to help us, they were like, this is a no-brainer. Like, what do you need? Um, Because there isn't a place like that. Um, It's quite a distance away to find a, a place like that. And we also have a community that meets here, a non-for-profit that meets here and works with children with um, cerebral palsy through the week. They're amazing people who If a child doesn't have insurance or they don't have the means to pay for therapy, they still do camps here with the kids. So this has been an amazing thing for these children to watch this playground get built. They even had their own lemonade stand and raised money for the the playground here. So it's a place that not only our church community uses, but also outside communities that are working with children with disabilities how do how to encourage a church um, as they start this journey of um, seeing um, those that maybe don't look like us or what what we think as perfection and normalcy? A lot of times, um, and I kind of said it before, they'll you're meeting a smaller amount, right? Um, a minority of people. So how do you measure this? in a church, and I think um, the measurement is both for a child who has a disability and the person ministering, and um, I think, I'll say it again, it's the kingdom work, it's not always measurable, Um, it's sometimes the smallest kind word or acceptance or a relationship I think what encourages me is the relationships I see being built and they're not always quick. Um, We can all be very surface in relationships. But when you see those true relationships where we're, again, we're sharing each other's struggles, we're sharing that this journey is hard because God said it'd be hard, right? To each and every one of us. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. But making it a place of transparency where each one can offer is discipleship. It's journeying along with someone, and those aren't always measurable in a textbook way but they're measurable as our faith grows each one of us as our faith grows and sees and says i see god in this i see jesus in this like as our faith grows those are the measurables so they might not be in big numbers but they're big in heaven like it it means it in heaven like that's where the angels are rejoicing So seeing that measurable.
0: Thank you again for listening, especially all the way to the end. I want to thank the folks at HOKO for the time and the wisdom. And I really hope that you get a chance to check out more about them and consider how you can apply what they shared to your ministry or your community. I also want to thank Marlon Washington for being the executive producer of this podcast. He mixes this, edits it, and makes sure I sound good. Our music is by the Christian hip-hop artist, the one and only Josiah Williams, and this podcast is powered by Awana. You can give to Awana at awana.org slash donate. And before we go, I have one more thing. Talk About is the family discipleship ministry from Awana, and my friend Shauna, who is the chief architect of talk about gets the last word on today's episode. Thanks for listening.
4: When
2: I look at God's creation and all its beauty, I'm filled with an overwhelming sense of wonder. And yet the creation is nothing in comparison to its creator. This week, let's talk about our amazing God. He is first and last and only,
4: and there is no one and nothing like him.